Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw. And today we're doing another mentoring series. I'm really delighted this morning to be speaking with Dr. Panise Corey and Dr. Parker Rule, and they are both researchers and physicians who work at NIH. They work at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases um, with research for Dr. Corey. And we're also talking to Dr. Rule about her research in malaria and vector um, diseases. And the two of them in terms of each other's careers really bolster each other through their mentoring relationship as peers. So we're gonna talk about women in medicine, researchers in medicine, and just how they each inspire each other as they they move their careers forward. They're both in various leadership positions um, at the head of research committees, working in their specialty societies, also working on medical training. Dr. Corey had received her medical degree from the University of Illinois, did a residency at Ohio State, fellowship at NIH, and a master's from Duke. Dr. Rule, University of Virginia Medical School with a residency at Hopkins, a fellowship there as well, also her master's from Duke. So we're speaking to two very, very smart women researchers and Panise and Parker, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thank you, Lori, for having us on. It's really an honor to be here. All right, let's get started. Panise, let's start with you, but I want to start the conversation with both sort of like, what do each of you do every day? What is your research focus? What is your work at um, NIAID? Panise? So, I'm a physician, a clinician, and a scientist. And it's funny, people often ask if I see patients or if I do research, and the answer is really both. So I really fell in love with immunology before I even started my training in internal medicine. So I knew I would specialize in this field. Um, and you know, in immunology, it's really a natural progression to research as, you know, the, the diseases that we study are very granular. So the, the word is actually eosinophil. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to say immunology. I'm like that one, <laughs> I'm, I've really got down. So I'm going to go with that. <laughs> that's fine. Um, so, you know, I realized, you know, doing research that it really provides a way to improve fundamental knowledge that influence our practices in medicine. And when I came to NIH, I really found that, you know, the clinical and translational research to be areas where I could really find that balance. And so I really, you know, I perform research in rare diseases involving that white blood cell called an eosinophil. Um, and I, I think I've managed to create a perfect job path for myself where I can do many different things. You know, my days are really quite varied, so I'm never bored. In my current role, I run clinical trials, I see patients, I'm performing research, and I supervise trainees as the fellowship program director, um, where I manage both the program administratively um, and also innovate in educational learning methods, you know, providing gamification and, and providing developmental opportunities to meet the needs of, you know, the evolving training environment for um, new learners. 
Well, that's exciting. And it, it's, been a, it's been a busy year or busy couple of years for research and science and particularly in um, infectious diseases um, and the like. And Parker, what about you? Just, you know, what does your day-to-day -day, um, work look like? Yeah, so similar to Penny's, um, I get asked by some people, do you see patients? And then other people, wait, do you do research? And depending on who I'm talking to, it seems that my emphasis is on one or the other. Um, and so it's it's an exciting environment to be in where you can do both on any given day. And you know, looking back at at my training, I'm a and where I am today. So I'm a lung doctor that works with infectious disease trained doctors and PhDs who focus on malaria and um, other vector borne diseases. But my lung disease training also in critical care has taught me a lot about physiology. And so I'm able to bring a new perspective into this group. Um, and sometimes I kind of find myself out in la la land. Um, and so that's part of why I, you know, when I've, I, when I've um, interacted with Penise uh, about what she does, even though what we do as a topic is very different. Um, there's some commonalities about how we do it, how we spend our time. And, you know, looking back at my my prior training and how that affects uh, having a, a day that's very varied. Um, in undergrad, I majored in economics and I uh, double majored in a foreign language knowing I was going to medical school. And I've just always really enjoyed having a day that that otherwise can sound kind of complicated, meaning like hopping between uh, different topics, but knowing that some underlying themes uh, apply to everything that you're doing. When I speak to so many um, physicians on inspiring women, I always like to dig into sort of like, what was the path to being a physician? And for both of you, that path to being a physician also included, you know, being very focused on important research as well as government service. So how, like, what's the, how did you get here story? What was the inspiration for diving into um, each of your fields? And in particular, you know, the important work of research and government service. Parker, do you want to start there? Absolutely. So I happen to have a father who um, was in the military and government service, but he was also a, a lawyer by training. So he had a lot of private sector opportunities. Um, and he was also an economist at heart, um, meaning that he always looked at the macro view. Um, he uh, predicted uh, what the Soviet Union might be able to do in certain war game scenarios in the 80s. Um, wow. and so growing up with that mindset, you know, I always saw government service as something that's valuable uh, in and of itself, that you can have, you can be highly skilled and it. And I grew up in the DC area. So I always kind of flustered at the notion of, you know, a, a government bureaucrat sitting in a room, not doing anything. Cause I knew that very many people are, are nothing like that at all. Well, I think that we've all come to learn that, you know, the work of public service is a very important um, thing to do. So, Panis, what was your um, direction to be, do the work that you're doing today? Yeah, so, you know, I don't have a story like Parker's. Um, what I remember, though, is, you know, as a as a child, my mother really inspiring me, you know, we escaped Iran really on on her doing. Um, she was just a strong woman and managed to get us to all the places that we needed to get to to advance our education. And that was really one of the driving forces. And so, you know, she was a nurse and and I remember thinking, 
you know, healthcare, and my father was a physician too. So healthcare is really a place where you can make a difference in people's lives. Um, and that was really the, the thing that struck me is, you know, there weren't as many women that I knew at that time that were in, you know, physician roles. And my mom said, you know, her, her father, when she was going to nursing school, told her that she should be a physician. And, you know, she, she was in Iran at the time and it wasn't so easy. Um, and so she really was the one that said, you know, you can do this. And so when we um, finally came to the United States, uh, it was one of the things that I, you know, I didn't think I was going to be able to do it necessarily, but I really worked towards it. And, you know, my father was always very supportive and said, you know, you can do anything you want to do. And I think part of the, the, the part that I didn't talk about, that's part of my, you know, that's not really part of my job description, but is weaved into the general ethos is that of supporting other women in junior faculty in medicine. And I think, you know, when I came to NIH, I realized research is not very easy to do. It's a very fun environment to do research at NIH, um, but it's not easy to navigate for everyone and to really try to make that environment more hospitable um, and to allow other women to thrive in research and, and medicine is, is something that really drives my passions. Well, you both have sounds like a, a commonality in your backgrounds in terms of a global perspective um, from where you came from, the drive to um, giving back in terms of whether it's supporting other women or supporting just, you know, the public through the research um, and work that you do, as well as patients that you see, just some interesting um, commonalities commonalities there we'll get into sort of how the two of you came um, together but let's maybe start with the sort of state of play for women in medicine so um, we know the statistic there are many more women going in um, to becoming physicians today with over 50 percent of medical students are women matriculating physicians um, but the leadership correlation is not as um, even there with you know we have about 12 percent of females being medical deans 18 percent of department chairs um, being women. So just as you have over the years of sort of both going through medical school, doing your residency, becoming leaders in the various research capacities that you currently hold, what are you seeing? Is it changing and evolving? Is it changing at a pace um, that makes sense from what you're seeing? Panise, do you want to start? Sure. You know, there, there are many different things that go into this, you know, the pressures of funding and managing life, you know, when doing research is, you know, can be quite stressful. You know, the structures have not really been traditionally set up to ensure women have a fair shot. You know, I think a lot of people are talking about this more. Um, you know, for example, you know, more journals are intentionally realizing that women or even historically underrepresented individuals need to be on these editorial boards um, or even hiring and promotion committees. You know, putting women in places where, you know, they can then achieve more um, and have more concrete opportunities downstream is, is really important. And I think that has not traditionally happened. Um, you know, the American Association of Medical Colleges recently put out an article that really spoke to bridging the gender gap in medicine and of course, the issue is very multi-pronged, but one of the few highlights um, were topics on self-advocacy for leadership training uh, and cultivating mentoring relationships, which is what we're talking about today, um, you know, to allow women to have the structures to succeed. Um, and even beyond mentorship, finding sponsors, you know, people that are willing to go to bat for you, put you in positions to achieve, you know, speaking opportunities, um, you know, that next grant or the next next position. I think all of those are are very important. 
Well, it's something you're also focused on. And so, you know, I think that, you know, you talked about supporting other women, you were doing that earlier on before, you know, all this research, I do see a lot of um, attention to these issues in a systemic way, which seems positive, but is it enough? Is it fast enough? Or is it long overdue? Probably all of the above. Um, Parker, what are your thoughts? So I love that you started this question with data and numbers. And I know Penise loves it too, because I know how she thinks, because that's one thing that seems to get lost in, in medicine and science. We're, we're all really good at evaluating data. You know, we should be, but we seem to kind of get lost when some of the topics are, are harder to address. Um, my medical school class uh, was 66% female. And, you know, it just goes to show that having the numbers coming in doesn't necessarily translate to uh, the numbers coming out. Um, so I think having, you know, it's not just having women even in leadership positions, it's having the entire structure be sure that women aren't lost in the pipeline, that that all women that are, are you know, there's already so much time and energy put into the training of uh, someone that's in medical school. Why are we losing these people at all these different paths? You know, let's, we have to identify all the different touch points for, for training and professional development um, and not just see it as individuals making choices. So what are your thoughts? Why are, why are we, it's a leaky pipeline. That's a, that's a term that has been um, used often. Why do you think that pipeline is so leaky given those numbers that you're talking about? One specific example is that uh, funding and, and becoming independent in, in your scientific training directly overlaps with the, the fertility window. And so I think it, it gets down to that feeling sometimes that the system wouldn't be set up that way um, if everyone had a fertility window. <laughs> uh, or, you know, so I think there's certain things like that, that taking a big step back about where the incentives are, having timelines for being an early stage investigator that, that end um, when women are, you know, just barely, if they're choosing to have families, just barely able to start a family, and then they're no longer competitive for certain types of grants, for example. Penise, what would you add? No, I think that's really the the big thing. And I think the funding organizations are trying to, you know, trying to think about that, but it's really not enough, you know, especially for people that are specializing and sub-specializing, you know, no one really understands, I mean, how long uh, our training is, you know? So I just did a residency and a fellowship and that was seven years. Um, there are people who train much longer than that. And so, you know, that needs to be taken into account. So funding funding uh, windows or opportunities need to sort of like correspond or take into account fertility windows. That's a, that's a um, big deal. And do you think the right attention is being um, put on these issues or is it simply too slow um, at this point in time? I think there needs to be more attention to the intersection of the factors. So including funding, there's also the actual time and energy um, and, you know, in hospital time for clinical training. And so when you have people who are doing training to do research, they're doing training to take care of patients at the bedside. Those are all activities where, you know, there's the sort of button chair time. There's the standing in the hospital time. Um, and, it, and those overlap 
with that fertility window that we talked about. So the the overnight call that you need to do, the the activities that are all kind of happening at the same time, the acceleration of your career is kind of happening in multiple facets at the same time. Um, and you know, I'll take this opportunity to say it's not that I think it needs to be made quote unquote easier. I think to be a, a highly trained physician to to give good, high quality patient care, you need to spend time in the hospital. You need to have that, that care. But, but part of what needs to happen is an attention that maybe, maybe people can't do it all at the same time, you know, that, that over the course of your training, that over the course of a career, um, that people can kind of come in and out of certain strengths of, of how they're applying what they're learning. So this, so don't lower the standards, but change the way that it's delivered or required to allow for other factors in um, in people's personal lives, which are clearly um, important. You know, there's a lot of discussion about burnout and uh, in physicians. You know, being as a as a profession, physicians are significantly more burnt out than other um, professions, and women are even further um, significant more significantly burnt out than male counterparts. That's true for all um, professions, actually. What are you seeing there? Is this just a one more factor to contribute to burnout, or are they not necessarily um, related? What are your thoughts there? Maybe, and you know, I'm just saying, Panise Parker, but whoever wants to jump in, please do. You know, I think this topic runs very deep, and and you're right; it, it does certainly impact women in, in medicine a lot. I think there's there's um, historically been you know, the factor of being in male-dominated careers, uh, countering bias about what you actually wanted to achieve as a woman. You know, a lot of times, you know, if people saw you wanting to start a family, uh, they just naturally assumed that you didn't want to do the other things like research. Um, you know, women have historically faced sexual harassment. Um, and of course, there's the imposter phenomenon. You know, women often feel less than even if they've achieved some big goal, uh, but really don't feel as if they've earned it. So I think all of these things add up to women experiencing these, these feelings much more than men. Um, and then, you know, that then leads to burnout. So the other piece for me is, you know, we don't really talk about the emotional toll that women bear uh, in medicine. You know, and I can speak to this as a program director. And this was especially heightened during the, you know, this pandemic that continues to go on. Um, you know, the boundaries that are traditionally held in the workplace are not so much there for women. So if you're a woman and you supervise people, people are generally much more comfortable coming to you and being vulnerable, which we want. But what ends up happening is that women carry that load a lot more, both at work um, and then at home. And so this results in quite a lot of stress. Um, and so, you know, women spend less time or, or are able to spend less time doing more concrete things that, you know, build their resumes. So I think, you know, one of the things that I think is very important and, you know, Parker was getting to this is the supports that are needed at all levels, both within the healthcare system and also outside of it. So more access to childcare, having backup childcare options, you know, not everybody lives in a place where their family is or has in-laws or parents, or, you know, that can help, you know, having better supports for mental health for all levels, you know, trainees and, and really destigmatizing that so that not everybody's just going to one person to offload, um, you know, making these things more accessible and, and really breaking down the stigma, I think is very important. 
we've got some great ideas for how to actually make improvements um, to the system. So we've kind of talked about the state of play in terms of where the challenges are. Clearly the two of you um, support each other in your own um, obstacle, bolstering each other professionally, whether it's emotionally as well um, in your relationship. Why don't we just, you know, for the, how did you meet? Was it, was it medical school? It wasn't medical school. Was it um, your residency? Was it at NIH? Where did, where did, where did the, your friendship begin? So I remember the first time um, uh, that I really met Panese was we were in a, a town hall. Um, I had just joined the uh, peer elected clinical faculty council that we have. Um, and I was, you know, on the team of people hosting a town hall. And, you know, at town halls, people kind of, they bring up questions, concerns. A lot of times, you know, there's the same concern that might've been there last year. Um, and I just noticed, I mean, Penise was a little bit of a pit bull. She brought up a topic and she like kept talking about how, you know, we can do this better. There are examples. But what I noticed is that she really followed through with, and we can do it better. Like, let's do it better. Um, and, and had this optimistic tone with it while still pointing out the, the problems. And so that kind of stuck with me and Penise remembers, this is where you get into that, you know, couples that have a, <laughs> a joint memory. She remembers that then we continued conversation in the hallway in the elevator, but then I reached out to her later and, and, you know, I asked her if, if, if she wouldn't run for the council, because I thought she could be a great addition. Like a lot of busy people, you know, she initially said she didn't know if she'd have uh, the time or, or focus. Cause I think she held a lot of respect for what, what that time would be. Um, but I think we, we were, we were lucky that she did put her, throw her hat in the ring. Yeah. I, I actually remember the, the hallway conversation. Um, you know, there was a, a group of women talking about titles and, and actually salaries, you know, things that are sometimes considered taboo topics in medicine. Uh, and I, I also remember the commonalities that we had, you know, Parker, you, were just as invested in improving the process and, and the system improvements um, to improve the roles of, of women and, and actually all junior faculty in, in research and medicine. I think that really you know, struck me. Um, and I think that's where you know, the friendship began and we realized we had a lot in common. And you know, even though we were, at that time, we were actually in different institutes, we weren't even in the same institute and, and we started talking and, and hanging out. Yeah. When the two of you met, and so it sounds like there was sort of like, a, oh, wow, here's this kindred spirit who, you know, uh, thinks similarly, um, wants to make changes and has ideas for how to go about making that happen. Um, when did it become, so, you know, for the two of you, you know, a realization that these types of, um, I don't know if you call it camaraderie, I don't know if you think of yourselves as peer mentors, um, how, maybe how would you characterize your relationship? And then importantly, you know, um, how did the two of you, it sounds like you're joined forces in terms of wanting to make improvements um, across the across the system there? Yeah, so I think the phrase peer mentor uh, perfectly defines um, what Penny's has has come to be for me. Um, you know, it's I'll I'll even sort of highlight it. It's not that we, you know, have become friends in this way that's outside of our professional work. I mean, in a very positive way a lot of our connection is the, the professional connection. Um, and so, you know, we found ourselves uh, sitting next to each other um, at a large conference and Penise started telling me that she was getting tapped to take on another role. And, and, you know, she was sharing it in the vein of, 
you know, this, this might be a lot, you know, I'm not sure if that's even the direction I want to go in, but I could also tell that she was just really excited about the opportunity. And then what I really appreciated about Peniz is that then over time, I've been able to watch her take on that role and do it very successfully. I've been able to watch her take on new responsibilities uh, and begin training others um, and been able to see how she's implementing it, knowing the conversations when she wasn't sure about what would work out. Um, and so I think having that kind of inside track to how people develop through um, promotions, uh, going back to negotiating, um, you know, Peniz very clearly negotiated for a situation that uh, gave her the increased promotion for the increased responsibility that she was taking on. And that took some concerted effort. Um, and so I think I've learned a lot from her ability to advocate for herself while still advocating for the institution and the process as a whole. What are your thoughts, Peniz? Thanks, Parker. I mean, I so I view you in just as positive of a light. I think, you know, through your actions in, you know, our, our council that we're part of, uh, you know, you became more visible across the organization. And I think, you know, we were doing important big things in terms of improving professional development for people around us, um, you know, uh, leveling the field for all junior faculty to, to actually have opportunities. But I think through that, you know, not only were we doing that, you also uh, became much more visible um, and were sought out by upper leadership to provide, you know, advice about faculty development. Um, you know, you're always so humble about it. I think, you know, if you were in a larger organization or a, a private organization, you would have some big title. And I think, you know, this is the public service piece. You know, we do a lot of these, these actions quietly. Um, and, you know, I know people notice that, you know, everybody knows what you've done, but I, I really know what you've done because I've seen it, you know, all the time and the effort that it's taken to get, get all this in place. You clearly are uh, cheerleaders for each other. You're obviously, you know, very supportive of and, you know, each other's work and the admiration you each have for each other um, really comes through. I'd love to get your thoughts on just, you know, how you think about just professionally um, your mentor plans. I've talked to a variety of women about their mentors and we've talked about sponsors and mentors and both of you are also helping other women um, come along. How do you think about mentors just generally for your professions? Is it a strategic plan that you want to have, you know, these different types of people? And why is the peer mentor so very important to you in um, your own professional development? So I think the, the peer mentor for women in particular, you know, if we go back to the data and the pipeline that you introduced to us, you know, it's necessary because there are fewer women in leadership positions, uh, you know, fewer women that are several steps ahead of where I am right now for me to even uh, forge a connection with. Um, so I think for that, you know, it, it's necessary, but I also think uh, you can learn so much. Uh, you know, when I was even choosing a residency, one of the, the pieces of advice I was given was go somewhere where you will learn from your peers. And part of why we want to improve professional development for everyone, men and women, and you know, all underrepresented groups, is because we want to learn from a diverse group of peers. 
I want to have the recruitment and retainment of highly skilled and highly effective physician researchers in our community to be great so that I can work with effective and highly qualified uh, people. You know, when I get a consult, I want it to be a good question. So I think your peers are just a vital part of, of your day to day. Companies, what like what traits do you, do you look for? You know, when you're looking for a peer mentor, obviously you and Parker, um, you know, f you know, found sort of common ground and inspired, you know, sort of sought each other after that, um, you know, first first meeting. But do you look for certain traits to, you know, complement your skills um, when you look, you know, develop your mentor um, relationships? Um, yeah, I, I do. I think one of the things that Parker and I had really right off the bat was a the commonality, um, but also just honesty. I think that is really important. I think, you know, somebody that you can bounce ideas off of. I mean, Parker and I do a lot of back channeling, so to speak. I mean, we talk before going into meetings, after meetings um, about, you know, what is the message? What are the things that we try to And we don't always agree. I think that's an important piece. <laughs> We don't, but but it allows us to really more, you know, better flesh out what we are actually trying to to get done. Um, you know, having the person that you can talk to about what you should be negotiating, what to ask for, not being shy, and you know, having that trust to be honest and and open. And you know, I don't think this is so unique to women, um, but you know, and we we've talked about this. I, we don't actually get as much information from from male peers, um, and I don't know if it's just not, you know, something that you know they talk, they think about as much. Uh, and women are always trying to, you know, get back to a level playing field, get back to equity. And I think that you know these issues are very intersectional, you know, for people who are underrepresented in medicine too. Um, to, but having that open, honest conversation is really um, very important. The, the second thing is not feeling judged, you know, having that really comfortable relationship where you're just as as able to seek advice as you are sharing it um, and really being generous with your your good and bad. I think one of the things that, you know, as a woman in, in medicine who actually also has a family, um, it's very messy. You know, uh, it's we hold ourselves as physicians to such a high standard, but the reality is how we're actually doing it is not is not a linear path. You know, and so if you start comparing yourself to other people who have achieved so much more in our different stage of life as you, um, that can be very demoralizing. But having peers at the same stage of life or the same stage of career is very important. You know, and you notice that everyone's juggling a lot. I mean, life is difficult. Um, so I think that is, those are, are things that I look for when I'm finding peer mentors. Well, you're also talking about, you know, tactics. And so, you know, so as a mother, as, you know, with a family, um, having a peer mentor who is there for support just to deal with the messiness of, you know, professional advancement while still dealing with quite a bit of home responsibility, you know, motherhood, family raising, all of those things. And then tactical things, just very practical sort of you know, talking ahead of, you know, trying to advance a change within your organization and having a plan, whether you agree on it or not, and then um, supporting each other's point 
points of view, perhaps um, in a meeting. That's a, you know, it seems like a very small thing, but important in terms of, you know, the things that you're trying to do. Panise, when we first met, you talked about really wanting to be the change. And you felt with what I heard you say is that with Parker, you felt like you had an ally who was also wanting to make change happen. Is that, did I get, did I get that right? Is that how you think about what you're trying to do? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. You know, it, in in government and, and in a lot of organizations, there's a lot of talk, right? Parker and I had ideas, but I think both of us are, are definitely much more action oriented. You know, we sought each other out, you know, plowed ahead with initiatives, you know, maybe sought a little bit less external validation than is typical in our roles. Um, and really started programs. You know, we started initiatives, we started programs and forged ahead. I think that that action oriented um, approach is what I, you know, what I think of, you know, making change, you know, not waiting for someone to to say, yeah, it's okay, go ahead and and do this. We we just forged ahead. And and Parker can speak to this. I mean, you know, some of the professional development seminars and things that that we created, uh, you know, Parker really, you know, got those up from the ground running. And, you know, with an entire group of uh, of people and, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, of course. Um, but I think the idea that you just got to start somewhere, um, you, you really do. You have to dive in. You know, the first thing that we organized, um, there were some questions about whether people would even come. And we decided we thought people were interested. Um, and, you know, we'd done some surveys and such, but but it really hit the road and people signed up and they asked for more. And, and so, uh, you know, as an entire group, we didn't look back. Well, the, what you're talking about in terms of whether it's improvements in process changes um, and the like, it all sounds really positive. Have you hit roadblocks and um, obstacles along the way? And if so, how have you dealt with them? I mean, the pandemic really, you know, threw a wrench in, in a lot of things. I think, you know, what happened is everyone went indoors. And so that resulted in not as many opportunities for natural networking. And so I think one of the things that we, you know, then strove to do was create those same opportunities intentionally, you know, building the networks and opportunities for others in a virtual sense. And, you know, now we're back, you know, everybody's back in person, but I think, that, you know, there's still quite a lot of, um, you know, people in offices and less open doors. A lot of these natural connections that would have occurred in the hallway, they're not happening as much. And so I think really, you know, that's one of the big roadblocks that has occurred in the past three years is recognizing the people that are coming up don't have at least even the same opportunities that we did just a few years ago. And so I think, you know, that's one big roadblock that I notice. Yeah. You know, the, the elevator conversation, that in-person meeting where I got some feedback about where Penny's stood because we were in person, um, you know, it is harder to have those things now. I think the other challenge that we found is culture change is a long slog. And so you can create a system, a scaffolding for uh, for people to have professional development, but you still have to to worry and be concerned. You know, is it reaching everyone? Um, are all the the supervisors, are all the the mentors that people have getting the message? Are they part of the system? So I think that's that's still that's still a hurdle is is setting something up that that is sustainable and that reaches everyone. 
it, it takes enormous um, energy, but boy, is it worth the effort um, when you can see improvements there. So I love the passion that you're both bringing to this conversation. There is no question that, you know, for women, generally speaking, in leadership, we lost an entire generation of progress. That's certainly according to um, the World Economic Forum's um, study that talks about gender parity across the globe. As you think um, ahead, uh, clearly you're committed to not just the work that you actually do in research and um, as physicians, but also you're thinking about what I hear is just a thriving, equitable, opportunistic workplace um, for everyone. What is, what, it, what is your vision for that? How do you think about that? And how close or far are we from it? Wow, that, that's a very difficult question. You know, there's no, I don't think there's a clear path. I think, you know, a, a lot of this is local, you know, in your own organization, you know, making sure that, you know, the people around you are, are supported, you know, having others, you know, in positions of power verbally walk you through the journey, whether it's applying for grants or, or otherwise. But there are many people that are left behind. I mean, it, it's, it still occurs, you know, there's a maternity tax, um, you know, people often have to make up extra shifts when they come back from maternity leave. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Um, and so I think it's very tenuous, you know, this what we're talking about, it's it's tenuous. And what Parker was talking about is really setting up the system so it doesn't depend on one person or a few people to provide opportunities. You know, it's very humbling. I don't think these these are these are not shifts that are going to happen overnight. I think there's, I don't know. I Parker, you might have a better, better answer. I, I'm not really sure how to assure that, you know, we can be successful. Yeah, I mean, I think I can take the baton that it, we don't want a system that's dependent on the goodwill of individuals. I think as, you know, and in, in listening to your podcast, Lori, and hearing about how other people navigate mentoring, you know, a lot of people talk about like not having a linear path and not, you know, f having your own um, striving th that guides you. I, I think that's still a key piece of this, but I, I think it it also needs to happen with some scaffolding. It needs to happen with a system that's set up so that people have the opportunity to succeed and move ahead when they want to. One At one point during my training, um, I told a male colleague that I was pregnant and it, he had, they actually said, I'm sorry, because they they earnestly knew that I was intent on a serious research career and I, I, they they felt that it would be harder for me now. But I haven't forgotten that response. You know, I, I think we we have to find our own individual paths, but we have to create a system where no one no one would have that thought. No one would 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 see it as something that they were sorry for because they would see that the system is going to support that person through their training. So that that obstacle is so big, right? So just to just call a spade a spade here, right? You know, so the maternity tax and the lack of alignment in terms of the um, the fertility the fertility window with the time period where you're forging ahead in your career is the right attention on the you know the the scaffolding changes that are needed or you know where does that attention need to be placed to make the changes to allow for the equitable opportunity for women to advance in those areas i mean so speaking from the training environment i think there are 
structural changes that are being made. So there are policy changes that that you know that require that institutions provide places for women, for example, just to pump milk to feed their babies. So leveling the playing fields, you know, from a policy level where it's possible is one of the avenues. It's a little bit harder to try to change, you know, the, the silent retribution piece, you know, about somebody saying that they're sorry you're pregnant. I think I think those are mindset shifts. And as more women are able to achieve active leadership roles in research and academic medicine, I think that representation is important and really dispels the notion that women can't do it and and can't have a family and and balance you know no one ever achieves a, a, a perfect balance but it is possible to do all aspects of leadership and academic medicine I, I think that you know many of us have shown that that's possible I mean it's such a critical issue I mean what you're talking what you're talking about is um, policy changes training changes and also as you know two leader individuals trying to move that along and shift culture that doesn't apologize you know um for for um pregnancy for having having a family and having to balance and those so you know certainly the support that you provide each other in a consistent voice of trying to um, move that forward is important but i'm also hearing you say there's a lot that you can do as individuals but without the system changing, um, the equitable opportunity just isn't going to be there. Yeah. So I think, I think it just can, it requires like continued attention. I think like a lot of progress that we might see in our society more broadly, uh, in terms of caring for the environment, in terms of identifying, uh, racial and economic inequities. I think we all identify that even when there's progress, you have to kind of keep working at what allowed that progress to happen while you're trying to make even additional progress. So it's a little bit of continuing to build where you made improvements um, while looking forward, but understanding that you can't just sort of only look forward. You have to continually make sure that the foundation that you think is better um, is firm. Well, I really appreciate both of you putting a spotlight on these issues and recognizing that there's um, it's important for as individuals and you know and as leaders to do work in this area and to support each other as well as to support other um, women and perhaps younger um, women coming along in their career trying to navigate. But also um, that these that uh, larger changes, policy changes, need to be made um, to make the level of um, advanced change that you expect from the system. System. As we close out on this inspiring women conversation, are there any um, advice that you might have um, to give to other women, perhaps who are pursuing careers in medicine, careers in research and public service? Um, Panise, do you want to close us out on that? Sure. I, I mean, I think one of the the biggest pieces of advice that I was given, and and I think I you know I can pass along, is to actually find mentors and find people that you connect with those that ha might have a similar motivation as you same goals um especially if you're in a, in a very complex organization because you can always come back to these people you know even if your role changes you move to a different part of the organization or you or you leave having these people um 
that you've intentionally forged a connection with that are not directly in your inner circle or your comfort zone is very important. I think reaching out to people who you respect and who are doing work that you find valuable is a great way to do that. And I think um, people underestimate the, you know, the cold call. I mean, you can call somebody and say, hey, I've seen your work and and I really appreciate it. And and sometimes that opens doors that you didn't really expect. And so I think being a little bit uncomfortable with actually intentionally forging connections outside of, you know, those you're most comfortable with is, is really important. Terrific. Parker? I agree completely. And I think, you know, the vision that we have, the hope that we have is that there is a scaffolding, there is, you know, mentoring and people are able to kind of see what, how can they set their, their career goals, but that, you know, at the same time that you look uh, for the people who outside of that scaffolding, you look for the people who you happen to overlap with, or you've heard enough about that you've, you know, stalked them on their website and you're interested, you want to know how they got where they are. Um, so I think adding in that piece of of intentionally finding people while still taking advantage of, of what might be structurally available to you uh, is a key component. Well, I think that it is both um, great advice and I just want to express my gratitude to both of you for both being on Inspiring Women, um, for both the work that you do as, you know, your public service work, your research, but also trying to make for a better workplace and equitable environment with opportunity um, for all women um, and all populations. So this has been an excellent Inspiring Women conversation. I have been speaking with Drs. Panise, Corey, and Parker role and Panese and Parker. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you, Lori. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.